you would please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, 2 Corinthians 3. Second Corinthians 3, our focus over these few weeks has been uh, verses 1 through 6. We will finish this up, but you will uh, note that the context of this is, goes through verse 18, and we will be dealing that with the weeks to come. We will pray, and then we will read the word of the Lord. A quick review, and then I will conclude the thought on the adequate minister, the question that is posed in 2.16. Father, we come before your throne, the author and the finisher. Father, knowing that you are the Alpha and the Omega, help us, Lord, to have ears to hear. That, Father, that our souls will be receptive to this. That as we begin, that you who have began a good work will perfect it in Christ Jesus. Father, um, you know my passion for this text. I pray that my brothers and my sisters will hear and it will become their passion. Father, even as this church in Corinth so many hundreds of years ago struggled, Father, your church here in this country struggles. Father, we know that it is not by might, it is not by power, nor is it by man's wisdom, nor is it by man's cleverness. It is solely and wholly by your Spirit. Father, may we hunger and thirst for your righteousness. May we seek first your kingdom and rejoice at the amazing things that you do. In Christ's name, amen. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 through 6. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifest that you are the letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills and the spirit gives life. What we're dealing with is the Apostle Paul explaining to the Corinthians why he is competent to be the minister who had gone into Corinth. He's been out of Corinth for a time. And um, it's typical throughout history, but it was very typical with the Apostle Paul, that when he would lay this foundation and train up these people, that false would creep in behind him. And they would come in and would lay alongside truth, error. It is ongoing today and it will go on until Christ redeems his church, takes her home, and then the final judgment will begin. It's that simple. And one of the things that I have seen in my just my short life is that um, it goes on all the time. Uh, I look... I deal weekly with numerous pastors here in Castle Rock, and I know what they have bought into. And, um, you know, I've already made my stance. When I hear them tell me something, my reply is always the same to them. And where is that in Scripture? Okay, and as soon as I say that, they understand exactly what I'm saying. That that is your plan. It is not necessarily God's plan. Okay, now they'll all tell you, well, I've prayed about it. Well, if it ain't in the Bible, then you didn't pray hard enough. Or you didn't pray long enough or however that works. Okay? When I look at this and I think of what the Apostle Paul is coming out of and what he said, for we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Uh, that's amazing stuff. You think about that for just a second. 
Okay, we are the fragrance of Christ rising to God. Did you get the we part? That's you and I. Okay, can you explain to me what school would you go to so that you could be the fragrance of Christ to God? Just an idea. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ, be manifest through us, makes clear through us, exposes through us. What? The sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, it's the aroma of death to death. To the other, it is the aroma of life to life. And then the question is, who's adequate for that? Who is adequate for these things? Do you please note this? It doesn't say that this is the pastor's responsibility. It doesn't say it's the preacher's responsibility. It doesn't say it's the elder's responsibility. It doesn't say it's the deacon's responsibility. It says that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it is your responsibility. That you live a life in the knowledge of Christ. That is the aroma of life to the living, death to the dying, to all men. And the sweet aroma of Christ rising to God. So he asked the question. Who's adequate for this? Who's adequate for that? And that's what we've been looking at in verses uh, one through six. One, he hasn't established God, God, godliness. Okay, he makes the statement in verse one. Do we, are we beginning to commend ourselves? Meaning that, do I have to reintroduce myself to you? Do I need to tell you who I am? Do I need to explain to you my life? Do I need a letter that says this man is not a false teacher nor apostate? Paul says, I was with you for 18 months. I went from house to house. I lived among you. I taught you day in and day out. And I now have to reintroduce myself to you. That's what Paul's saying. All right. I got to start over again and see the thing about the apostle Paul is his holiness, his godliness went before him. Everybody knew who he was, where he had started and where he was. Okay, today we get letters, you know, this such and such is a good person. We don't want him anymore. Will you take him? That ought to make you all nervous. Okay. But I watch churches today. I will go get a complete stranger because he graduated from such and such a place. And ta-da! I don't understand it. I mean, you see the scandals in the pulpit, don't you? But let me ask you a question. How come we don't see the scandals in the congregation? Because there's been one or two. You ever asked yourself that question? I mean, we see him in the pulpit. But part of that that I see in the pulpit, um, for lack of a better term, is deserved. It's deserved. Why? Their godliness was what? Secondhand knowledge? Thirdhand knowledge? Or maybe it wasn't even known. That's what the Apostle Paul is dealing with in Corinth. You had people who were coming into the fellowship, and as they came into the fellowship, they were claiming that, look, I have a letter from the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. Okay, but I've already shown you in Acts that there was a sect of the Pharisees that was in the church, where? In Jerusalem. Okay, and remember when they had the Jerusalem Council? They believed that you needed to be circumcised and keep the Mosaic Law. And Peter stood up. Mr. Educated said, no, no. See, Peter had already been through that. Remember the little vision thing and eat, give thanks. I've cleansed it all. Now I'll go to the Gentiles. And Peter's like, what? Anyway, so he has a godliness that comes before you. But the, the adequate minister also has been used to transform lives, has used to transform lives, either bringing people into salvation and or sanctifying people, making them holier, making them godlier. Now, listen, the only way that I know that is even possible of doing either one is the unadulterated, uncompromising, uncluttered gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I cannot give you 40 days of purpose. I can give you Christ, Him crucified, raised on the third day, ascended at the right hand of the God the Father. I hear nothing today in the church except methodology. And that is no different than the church in Corinth. Let me, now that you are saved, give you some do's and don'ts. That's wrong. That's wrong. Not only do they transform, does this adequate minister transform lives, they are confident in their calling. I'm confident in the scriptures. Paul was confident in what God was doing and in their calling and his calling. And knowing that if you have been called by God, he didn't just chuck your butt out there and says, boy, I hope they can pull this off. Because I see some out there that that's sort of way they live their lives. Boy, I hope this works. All right. If God has called you, then he has gifted you. When I think about gifting, I'm thinking about empowerment. He has given you an ability that is beyond you. I'm not talking about talent. You know, I know a lot of pastors today who are extraordinarily gifted speakers. But I know a lot of politicians who are too. And I trust them both equally. (laughs) I'll let you guys ponder that. Okay? We need to be aware of this. Why? The confidence is not in us. It is not in me. It is not in my education. It is not in my social class. It isn't where I was born or anything like that. My confidence is God has set me aside and gifted me for this purpose. That's an adequate minister. Because the adequate minister would be that fourth thing, verses 5 and 6a. There's a humble dependence on God. Humble dependence on God. You know, um, people ask me, they'll they'll ask you this in in different times. Well, pastors, how did you know God called you? (laughs) I didn't. (laughs) I was the last one standing. (laughs) Everybody else was gone. I'm standing there going... Oh, this is ugly. I can tell. Okay. Then they say, well, how do you know you've been called to preach? Because it scares the bejesus out of me to do it. I do not like speaking in front of people. It is one of the, it is maybe the single most uncomfortable thing that I can think of. So for me to do this has got to have divine intervention in it. I can't do this. I don't like this. My hands are sweating even now. And I've been doing this for a few years. It still scares me. I can sit at my desk and talk to people and sit in a little group and talk to people. I don't have any problem with that whatsoever. But to stand in front of a group of people like I've got something to say is somebody here is crazy. (laughs) Either you guys are crazy for sitting there. Or I'm crazy, I don't know. Or God, I don't know. He just said God was crazy. I'll let you read his book. This is the stuff that you and I have to think about because there's a dependence on God. Have you ever thought about this? What I just read to you, you are the sweet aroma. It's life to the living and death to the dying. Really? And you're going to do that how? What educational background will you carry to say, I will be life to the living and death to the dying and the sweet aroma of Christ to God because I got my Ph.D. in what? You ever thought about that? That's nuts. So if that person doesn't have a humble dependence, then they are the world's largest fool. Which brought me to last week's message, and I had to do it in two, and it had been another 41 messages. <laughs> he has a new covenant message. A new covenant message. And I laid that out. See that at the end of verse 6, they are servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, of, but of the Spirit. Okay, the new covenant is different than the old covenant. Remember, we have this thing that we do on the first Sunday of the month. It's called the Lord's 
table and he says, this is the cup which is in my blood. What is it for? The new covenant. A covenant that was sealed in blood. Okay? Do we understand that? And see, when I look in the body of Christ today in the United States, we are clueless about what that is. We have no idea what that is. If you look at your Bible, go to the uh, divinely inspired indexed, you will find that there is the Old Testament and there is the New Testament. If you take the word testament and look at it, you will find that in the original writing, it is the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We have a message of the New Covenant. We are New Testament. I mean, you'll see people, we are a New Testament church. What the heck does that mean? Well, across the street is the Old Testament church. (laughs) No. See, the adequate minister has in his mindset the new covenant. Paul in 1 Corinthians said, I was determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Okay, understand, that is the new covenant covenant and philippians chapter 3 he says i have all these credentials i was uh, an israelite i was tribe of benjamin i was circumcised on the eighth day when it came to my contemporaries i'd abandoned them all and all the rest of it and he gets this big old long list of all the stuff that he had accomplished and he says and i count it all rubbish trash a dung heap why because it is of no advantage i set it all aside Okay, what he's looking at is all the ceremonies and the rituals and the things that Judaism teaches, still teaches today. And you keep these. Listen, we have a new message. This new message does not need to be changed. It does not need to be cluttered. And it does not need some Hebrew stuff to go along with it. But see, Paul goes further here in this, and we kind of laid this out, all right? When you look there, he says this, it is not of the letter. Okay, when you think about letters, what do you think about? Words. I put a little bunch of letters together, I get a word. Okay, so the new covenant is not about Words. It's not about words. It is about, but of the Spirit. It is about the Spirit. Now, one of the things that I've watched in my life, here in Castle Rock specifically, okay, Castle Rock right now, uh, its largest influence in Christendom is, and for lack of a better term, charismatic. Okay? That is the person of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit gets blamed for everything. Okay. Then you have the other side, what they would classify as conservatives. All right. Now, what I've watched in in society is, and what I mean by society, the church community. All right, is the charismatics have corrupted so badly the person of the Holy Spirit that the conservatives were afraid of him. But I don't want to talk about him. He's the spirit. He's in the closet. We don't want to bother him. Okay. And what I look is, is that we need to be right in the middle of it. Okay, I don't like the word charismatic. Charisma is grace. Okay, charismatic means under grace. You know what? I am charismatic. I am under grace. All right? But one of the things that I've watched is, the people on what I call the liturgical side, they have all of these things that they add to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, you got to be here. Maybe we should have a Sabbath. We're going to have a foot washing celebration or ceremony or something like that. And they start throwing all these things out. You know, we're going to call for a fast. We're going to call for this. We're going to call for that. And they're just adding stuff to it. Okay. Whereas I get over and I look at the experiential side. I watch them and they're out there being complete dodos. You know, I can act as silly as a loon and blame the Holy Spirit for it. That's no different than Flip Wilson theology. The devil made me do it. Well, the devil got tired of being blamed for it, so we're going to blame the Holy Spirit for it.
It is about the Spirit, brothers and sisters. Go back to chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, verse 11. Who gives Holy, gives spiritual gifts? Holy Spirit determines. Okay? What Paul is saying here, he goes, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Here's what he's saying. Words. Even divine words. Even words out of the mouth of God. Hear me well. Divine words, words out of the mouth of God cannot and won't produce salvation. Divine words will not produce sanctification. Divine words will not produce holiness. pretty brass from a guy like Paul. I mean, you'd expect it from an idiot like me. But Paul sort of had this thing figured out. But that's what he's saying. The only way that these happens is not by words, but by spirit. Spirit of the living God. Words are true. Now, don't get me wrong. I I don't want to go wrong on this. The words are true. And all Paul says, they are holy, they are just, and they are good. The commandment itself is good. The law is good, but it cannot produce salvation, nor can it produce holiness. It's impossible. It's impossible. In fact, he even gets a little persnickety here. Look what he says. In fact, all the words will do. Look what it says. Will kill you. That's it. It's just going to kill you. You mean to tell me if I memorize the Bible? Ain't going to do a thing for you. Ain't going to do a thing for you. Okay. I want to show you some text. Wonderful letter. Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Beginning at verse 8. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect what? A new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which was which I made with their fathers on the day which I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. Bummer. Bummer. See, he's drawing a truth out of Jeremiah 31. Okay, he's saying, I will give a new covenant and it will not be the same. It will not be like the old covenant. It will not be like what covenant is he talking about? The Mosaic covenant. The covenant of Moses. See, there was a noadic covenant. You know what that is? Anytime you see a rainbow. Noadic covenant. Okay, you got the Abrahamic covenant. You know what that is? Anytime the Palestinians said they want their land back. <laughs> Oops. That's the Abrahamic covenant. (laughs) You have the Davidic covenant. You know what that is? Kings coming out of David. Got it. All right. You're you're going to all get saved. All right. So you got those. You see them right there. But you have the Mosaic covenant encompasses them all. And what was that? That's that book that everybody loves to read. That we've all memorized. Leviticus. (laughs) We've all memorized Leviticus. I see, is this a pigeon I need to, or a dove I need to? <laughs> and the pigeon's going, it's a pigeon, it's a dove. It's... Anyway. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people, and they shall not teach and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord for all will know me. From the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. Then he said a new covenant which has made the first what? Obsolete. 
But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Ready to disappear. See, that's what the prophet said. The writer of Hebrews is confirming it. That God is going to bring about a new covenant and the other one will be obsolete. Okay, if you go with the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and, and just go down the line with all those covenants, who was it that made those covenants? God did. Did he ask the people to be a part of it? He just says, I'm going to do it. Now, now then, God is going to bring a new covenant. Now, I want to understand something about the new covenant. It's not the moral standard. Okay? There's no difference in God and God's morality. Both are unchangeable. All right? God can't change. And the moral law of God, guess what? Can't change. All right? Um, But God does do away with the ceremonial stuff. We don't need it. When I look at the old covenant, the things that I know that I have no need of, it's really easy for me. Okay? The externals. Jesus said, it's not what goes into the man that defiles him. It's what comes out of the man that defiles him. Okay? The new covenant doesn't work on the externals. See, if I fix the internals, the externals are fine. On Wednesday night, I'm dealing with the position of a woman in a church. Okay? In in the church worship. All right? Uh, It's it's all men. It's kind of funny. No, I'm just kidding. Um, And I'm dealing with the adornment. How women adorn them. Now everybody's going to start getting nervous. Okay. Um, how a woman dresses to come and worship God is a picture of her heart. How many women this morning spent more time on what am I going to wear or how am I going to worship? See the difference? Hey, everybody's looking at each other. I'm fine. I better move on. Okay. The ceremonial law and the old covenant. Okay. Was external. Okay. Basically the ceremonial law and the old covenant was to separate Israel from the nations. I need everybody to listen very closely now. Everybody. I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I'm trying to pick on everybody. Israel had a ceremonial laws to separate them from the nations that were around Israel. Because God said, Israel, if you're not separate from them, they will corrupt you. Why do the saints of God prefer to spend more time around the corruptors than those who are holy? God ain't changed. That truth has not changed. If I spend more time around lost people, who do you think I'm going to act like most? Saved or lost? I watch people who literally think they can. I can spend more time around lost people because I might win them to Christ. Really? Israel never pulled it off. I've never seen that happen. Did you hear what I said? I have never seen that happen. Not only that, the whole book of Judges is written to prove to you it can't happen. The Mosaic law was to set aside. God said, you know what? You can't wear wool and cotton together. I always thought that was an odd one. Didn't you think that's an odd one? I mean... Gosh, God's kind of cranky. You know, what would he do with lycra? 
In some cases, he'd say, you never can wear that. But anyway, <laughs> you'll figure it out. But then I thought about it. Do you know what wool does? It's an insulator. You can take wool, stick it in a river, soak it, put it on, and it'll still maintain its temperature. Okay? Do you know what cotton does? It don't. <laughs> it don't insulate. You don't believe me? First time I ever went snow skiing, I wore blue jeans. Stupid. Okay? But have you ever thought about that? If I put cotton underneath wool, I start sweating because of the wool. Alright? What does the cotton do? It's cold. So God says, I don't want you to wear cotton and wool together. And we say, well, that sounds kind of... No, I think that's really good wisdom. It's just that we like to argue with God. Israel was separated from the other nations so that they wouldn't corrupt. Remember when um, in the book of Acts, when um, Peter had the vision, remember the, the, the like a cloth came out and all the foods that all the animals of all the lands came forward. Okay. And, and God says, give thanks and eat in the vision. Uh, and, and Peter looked up and I'm kind of paraphrasing here. No, I'm really paraphrasing. Don't kid yourself. Okay. And he looks up at it and he tells God, he says, dude, I'm kosher. I can't eat that stuff. Okay, um, you know, you don't call me to eat unclean. And, and, and God tells Peter, don't call unclean what I have cleansed. Okay, if you go back to the text in Hebrews chapter nine, verse one. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and earthly sanctuary. Amen. That was in the first covenant. Remember the tabernacle and the temple and. You know, on the day of Yom Kippur and all of this and all the rest. Okay. For there is a tabernacle, for there was a tabernacle prepared and the outer space, which was where the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. And that was called the holy place. Remember that? Yeah. Okay. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which was called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod. That had budded and the table that the tablets of the covenant and above it were the cherub glory overshadowed by the overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things, we cannot not speak in detail. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priest would continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing divine worship. But into the second only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood which he offers to himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. So the outer place of the holy place was accessible, but only once a year could the high priest go into the presence of God. That's what he's saying right there. Okay? And he only did that because he was dealing with the sins that were committed in ignorance. People who would sin not knowing what they did was a sin. All right? which is a symbol for the present time according both gifts and sacrifices and are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. You go in there with the best bull you got and you offer that blood offering to God for your sins because it's been a bad year. And when you walk out of there, guess what? Your conscience is still Bugging the stew out of you. Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of the Reformation. But, I like this but. But when Christ appeared as the high priest. Now remember, who could go into the Holy of Holies? The presence of God. The high priest. When Christ appeared as what? High priest. 
of the good things to come, he entered through a greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the bloods of goats and calves, but through his blood. He entered a holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption for the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he is a mediator of a... The word mediator there is a lawyer. He takes care of the new covenant so that since a death has taken place... Now understand, a covenant doesn't go into effect without the death of someone involved in the covenant. Okay? Um, Remember the Abrahamic covenant? Who made that covenant? God did. Okay, Abraham got spooked, okay, because he's seen God walking in and out of the blood of the, the bulls that he'd killed and all the rest of it, and it's terrified him. Okay, so for the Abrahamic covenant to go away, the only thing that has to take place is God's got to die. And everybody asks me, well, is the Abrahamic covenant permanent? Up until when God dies. Okay. Let me show you another text. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 2, verse 17. Well, let's keep its context. 16, 17, and 18, all right? Verse 16, Colossians chapter 2. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or inspect to a festival, a new moon or Sabbath day. Things which were a mere shadow of what is to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Let no one. Now, I want you to read this next phrase. Let no one keep what? defrauding you. When people start throwing religious holidays or religious foods or religious meals or you can't wear this or you can't do that, do you understand what they're doing? They are defrauding you. They are defrauding you. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. This is inflicting pain on myself because I just am such a worm. You know what? I am a worm. But God knew that or he wouldn't have died for me. Do you understand that? Listen, what I want to try to get at you with this. Anybody here sin today? (laughs) Nobody's admitting to it. Not me, man. Listen, have you ever sinned against God and you did it, let's say, willfully? All right. And then you walk away guilty. Right? And it just bugs the stew out of you, doesn't it? And it's, I just, I can't believe he's saying, oh. it, it just, well, maybe you guys don't do it that bad, but anyway, maybe you should. <laughs> okay? But what he's saying here is, you know what? His grace is still sufficient. Get over it and get on with it. You know what? I sin on a moment by moment basis and I get down on the ground and I say, Lord, can you believe it? And he says, yes. No. (laughs) And I just get back up and keep going. You've got to keep doing that. I ain't hanging a burden on you, but I know people who do. That's ridiculous. It is finished. It is not being finished. It is not in the process of being finished. It isn't sort of finished. It is finished. That's what the Apostle Paul, there was a shadow in the past, but now we have the substance. 
Go back to that text in Hebrews chapter 9. For this reason, we have a mediator of a new covenant. Since the death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. Did you get that? Meaning that the first covenant still couldn't save you. And those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Verse 16 says, For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never enforced by the one who made it lives. Okay, let me explain that to you. When you think about covenant or testament, it's the same as what you and I know as our first will and our last will and testament. When I die, this is what I want done. Okay? All right. Did you know I don't want this done before I'm dead? Okay? That ain't the way it works. At my death, this is what will happen. This is what's going to take place. And God said, this new covenant where I will write it on their hearts will happen at my son's death. Okay, now then. Let's talk about the external things. Under the old, under the law of God, it was words. And people said consistently, when God laid out his Words, what was the people's response? Every time you read it in the Bible, we'll do it, we'll keep it. And every time in the Bible, they couldn't. Okay? Under the new covenant, under the same truth, and it finds its way by the Holy Spirit into the heart of the person, and that is what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians. See, the Judaizers would lay, lay on you these words. Remember Jesus talking to the Pharisees? You lay on the people yokes and you won't even help them carry it. Galatians says if you see any brother in any trespass, what? Bear that burden. And it literally means to come up under an enormously heavy load and put your back into it and support it. And it had to do with mules when they would use mules for transportation. And that donkey got so squashed by such a heavy load, you got up underneath it and pushed up so that that donkey wasn't bearing that load. I know. I feel like a donkey. (laughs) So... But I watch people in churches today who are heaping things on people all the time. Oh, you can't wear that. You shouldn't dress like that. I can't believe you're driving that. You live in that house. I can't believe you work for those people. That is silly. And I see it all the time. Listen, you know what the words are going to do to you when they do that? Colossians says it'll defraud you. Corinthians says it'll kill you. It'll kill you. Have you ever seen those Christians who, who just look like they swallowed a lemon? Do you know which ones I'm talking about? They walk around like this. You better get saved. And you just look at them and you think, yeah, boy, I hope whatever you got isn't contagious. Okay? Because they've got all of this stuff. I've memorized the Ten Commandments. I remember people running around doing that now. Do you know the Ten Commandments? I know one. And I don't need to know any more than that one. I shall not have anything before my God. And the rest of it will take care of itself. I remember reading about Martin Luther. Martin Luther used to, when he was in a, in a, in a monastery, he was becoming a monk. Um, he used to spend up to five hours in confession every morning before breakfast. And I thought, no cable TV, no lights. How in the world do you... Five hours of confession? Okay, you know, I snored too long, Lord, or something. I don't know. But And the reason that he was is because he knew that the day before, he had not loved the Lord his heart, Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he would spend five hours confessing that. Yeah. 
How does it kill me? That's at Romans chapter 7, um, verses 9 through 11. You've heard it before. I'll just read it to you quickly. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved, which was to result in life, proved to result in death of me. Okay, Paul understood it. When I got to the word, guess what? It condemned me. Okay, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, all right, so what he did is that he went to the word of God. He wanted to be alive in Christ and then just condemned him. Okay, and I watch people do that. I know some of you right now who do that. You read the Bible and you walk away going, oh, I'm just I'm going to hell. See, it kills me because the words of God, because you can't keep it. You read it and you say, I can't keep it. I know that none of you guys have ever struggled with this, you know, been convicted of a sin, repented of the sin and moved away from it and never had a problem with it again. Okay, I do that every time I go to sleep. I don't have a problem until tomorrow. Paul says, when I found the law of God, it was a living death. The law of God gave Paul grief. The law of God gave Paul frustration. The law of God gave unfulfillment over guilt, gave him shame, gave him the burden of sin, the burden of iniquity. And the more that he knew, the more he knew of the law of God, the more disgusted he became with himself. I know that none of you have ever experienced that. But there's times when I look at the word of the Lord and I think, yeah. Paul says, I was a dead man. The law did not free me. The law did not give me life. The law did not make me feel alive. The law did not bring me joy. It did not bring me happiness. It did not bring me peace. It killed me. The second way the law kills you is that it take your life. Penalty of sin is death. Is death. Third way it'll kill you is that you become accountable for its disobedience. You disobey it, then that is external, and then your internal will haunt you. It will slay you. So the law is a killer. It is a killer. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul told the Galatians, Cursed is everyone who does not keep every part of the law. Quotes the Old Testament. So Paul is telling the Corinthians here, don't let those people come in and preach to you words. Even though they're true, they will be deadly. Don't think that somehow by having a moral code. See, I I, I see people who do this, who have a moral code, even a divine moral code. Do you know what? You can't attain to it. It's impossible. Well, I haven't coveted. I have honored my parents. I have not committed adultery. I have not stolen. I have not murdered. What are you doing, number one? What are you doing, number one? I will have nothing before my God. You know what nothing before my God is, right? That'd be nothing before my God. You don't think he's cranky about it. Go back to your Old Testament and read whenever Israel stepped into idolatry, what the response was. That is always pleasant. Don't let those people in. Don't you think that somehow by having a moral code, even if it's divine, you know, kind of a high standard. You can't live by it. It's not possible. If it was possible, then you don't need Christ. See, the new covenant comes along according to Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-three. I put my law within them. Ezekiel eleven twenty says, my statutes they will walk in, my commandments they will keep and do. 
the law that I have given them. See, the new covenant is the same as the old covenant. But the new covenant allows us to fulfill it. Here's your homework assignment for next week. Okay? It's just a small one. Read Psalm 119 and tell me which verses you cannot amen on. Psalm 119. Can you amen all 176 verses? Because every one of those verses, every single one of them, exalts the virtue of the law of God. And yet David could look at it. Now, do, you, do we remember David? Had some issues. Okay, I mean, he was an adulterer. He had multiple wives and porcupines or whatever they call them, concubines. Okay, he was a murderer. And yet he could say, oh, how I love thy law and it is my delight. How in the world do you do that? See, today you have the ability to love the law of God with all of your heart. And you should be able to go right through Psalm 119 and affirm all of it with a hearty amen. But how did David do it? Maybe David just, he did it with his fingers crossed. What about the Old Testament people? They got the Mosaic Law. They got all this stuff laying out there in front of them. Was it they living in frustration, guilt, remorse, shame, agony? What, what the heck? They never knew joy. They never knew peace. They never knew obedience. Ah, uh, no. I believe that David truly meant what he said, that I, you are my delight. I believe that the Old Testament saints, Abraham, and if, remember Abraham believed and it was counted unto him as righteousness. I'm thinking he didn't slip that one by God saying, I'm just faking it. The fact that Christ would someday die and pay the penalty for their sin is how they lived their life. You and I can look back and say, you know what? Today, Christ has paid the penalty of my sin. And those who love the law are able to keep it and enjoy the blessing of obedience. Because I look in the Old Testament and I see the person of the Holy Spirit doing what? Same thing he does today. Don't ever think for a moment that the Holy Spirit wasn't functioning in the Old Covenant. Um, Frankly, I believe most of the people in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, are no different than Christians today. I will tell you this. If you go back to your text, the letter left by itself is a killer. The words of God are a killer left unto themselves. The Spirit is the life giver. Paul is saying, now we have complete truth and the saving gospel. We preach the saving gospel and the life of the giving, the life giving Spirit takes the law and sears it into our hearts. We become one in Christ. There's no difference between you and Christ and Christ and you. And you can't do that by keeping the law. Now then, when one comes preaching anything but that, he is inadequate minister. He is unsatisfactory. The law and the gospel are not enemies. Okay? They are friends. Though the law itself has absolutely no power to save, all the law of God can do is condemn. It's watch, watch our society right now. What is our society trying to do? We're trying to say that this action and this attitude and this function is either a disease or it's not really sin. It's just a different lifestyle. Why? Because the law of God condemns. It kills. And the gospel... I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. 
And yet I watch pulpits across America today who act and what they're doing, they are ashamed of the gospel. And therefore you are doing nothing but condemning. The gospel can save, the law can't. Once the gospel saves, the spirit takes the law, puts it in the heart, and we can say with David, Oh, how I love your law. What's that mean to you? If I've got to get you into the Bible, that is not your problem. Your problem is you do not take delight in the word of God. Therefore, you have been defrauded. You are not his. If you can't willingly say, I want in his word because his word is my delight. You have a very serious problem. You are still under the old covenant. Which means Jesus is of no help to you. And you know what? Most of the times when I look at people like that, you can spot them a mile away because there's no peace in them. There's no joy in them. There's no, they carry guilt. They carry these burdens, these heavy weights that, you know, I've studied my Bible. I've read my Bible and I just feel it is awful. Dude, when I read my Bible, I think, man, I'm just one step closer to heaven. And I will come to a point where I don't have to deal with this stuff anymore. I will not be in the presence of sin. I will not be under the influence of sin. I will not have to sin. And I'm going to be happy. You know, I look at people who are, I'm going to go share my faith today because I'm supposed to. Please keep it. Don't share that with nobody. Good Lord, that's like saying, well, I've got diarrhea. I need to share it. No. Don't share it. Keep it. How can someone come along and pollute such the purity with works and circumcision and ceremony and ritual? And we still see it today. I see it in the Catholic system. I see it in the Orthodox system. I see it in the Jehovah's Witnesses. I see it in the Mormons. Everywhere I look, Islam's got it. Everybody's got it except Christ. And I see it in the Baptists. I see it in the Presbyterians. I see it all these other places. I want you to do this. You need to do that. You need to do that. And I'm sitting there going, no, do you read your Bible? And if you do not delight in doing that, and if I got to hold a gun to your head to make you read it, you're serious. You have a serious problem. And it ain't got nothing to do with, well, I'm in this denomination or I've talked to this person. No, man, you just ain't saved. You should want to know the mind of God. It should be overwhelming desire for you. I shouldn't have to force you. And if I've got to force you, you know what? I would suggest today, repent and beg him to save you. The simplicity of grace and faith in Christ. And it gets confused with stuff. Of ceremonies. The simplicity of Christ is completely obliterated in the evangelical church in America today. I say that with easy, easy to say. If a true representative of Christ Jesus is one who preaches the new covenant. He's not a preacher of legalism. He's not a preacher of rites. He's not a preacher of rituals. He's not a preacher of ceremonies. He's a proclaimer of Christ. He's a proclaimer of the cross. He's a proclaimer of the resurrection, the forgiveness of sin that was obtained at the cross by the complete atonement applied in the heart by faith. Romans 8 says, because of the Holy Spirit, we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, and we can keep the law. Who is adequate, competent? One has established godliness. One has transformed lives. One has confidence in his calling. One has humble dependence on God. And one has a new covenant message. Brothers and sisters, that is about as clear a message as you're going to get. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the new covenant. Thank you for the amazing things that you do through your spirit in the hearts of men and women, earthen vessels. Father, as we move into this new covenant over the next few weeks and months, Father, may our hearts even now be eager, expecting this. Father, with a zealousness to say, yes, Lord. Walk in the joy and the 
peace of God that surpasses knowledge, surpasses understanding. Father, let the things that have entangled us cut us free from it. Let the legalism, the ceremonies, and the rituals be cast aside as rubbish. Father, let us embrace full weight as Isaiah, the substance, Jesus Christ himself. Father, I think about the church in Ephesus and how they they had it all. They'd done it all. And they'd lost their first love. Father, let us not lose that love. Father, let us drink deep. Let us drink deep of the holiness of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, may we decrease and may you increase. And Father, may we walk with a joy, a a jump in our step, a, a smile on our face, that we are children of the Most High God. We're joint heirs in Christ. Through the terrible sufferings of our Savior, Lord, we come this day to worship in spirit and in truth and to the glory and majesty of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.